Welcome, I'm Dave. I'm John. And this is Teaching Like Ted Lasso. Our guests for this episode are middle school teacher and author Mike Cackley and community college instructor and PhD candidate Taylor Darwin. On March 21st, 2023, the cast of Ted Lasso visited the White House to raise awareness for mental health and well-being. So we thought an episode on social-emotional learning was in order and well-justified by the show. Warning. We expect that you have watched Ted Lasso, at least through season two. There will be spoilers ahead and scenes that don't make sense if you don't have some familiarity with the show. TLTLLT presents a scene from season two, episode 12. Hey, Winker! If my father had a panic attack in Normandy, we'd all be speaking German. Yes, sir. Just do the work, pal. You'll be all right. It has come to light that Ted had a panic attack. And the fan base are looking at him a little differently, right? So one of the things that Jason Sudeikis has said is that one of the goals was to make this idea of mental health and well-being to normalize it, to raise it up, to make it so that it wasn't such something that, again, would people would misunderstand. But, I mean, are we disambiguating between kind of mental health and social-emotional learning? I think that we need to get to that in terms of what mental health and how that relates to social and emotional learning. Mm-hmm. There's also some parallels between those things, particularly with um, what was happening in sports, right? You had these very high-profile athletes who were making decisions to take care of themselves. Right. And they got some some pretty nasty pushback from some folks. They got some support from mm-hmm. a lot of people, but there were a lot of people who, like the fan, wants them just to do the job. Right. They were just at the White House, as we said in the opening, and one of the the points that the president made was, it's not like if you break your arm or something that's very visible, and yet it's just as real and needs just as much attention. Yeah, and I I do see the parallels, because if you bring students' emotional well-being into the math classroom, there's literal efforts to ban that. People are like, I don't need you to teach kids about their feelings. I need you to teach math. So I think that that's sort of where I'm seeing the parallel is that how do we also normalize this idea of providing space in lessons for this social and emotional learning? Yeah, and admittedly, I, I don't know enough about this. Yeah, and I don't either, which is, again, one of the reasons why we started the podcast was so that we could talk to some, some smart people, and we'll get to that. We'll, yeah. get to, we'll get to hear how others are using it, what it means exactly. I think it's okay for us to at least try to suss out what we think it means. So when you hear social-emotional learning, what do you think about I'm thinking that kind of first the teacher is paying attention to that aspect of their learners, right? So that they're attending to how do the students relate to each other, 
they're relating, they're attending to the emotional state of their learners. And that the, the learning piece of that is that we're providing them some means to handle those things, to assess those things themselves and positive steps to take to be able to move forward from wherever they are. Mm -hmm. So that actually reminds me of a scene. There's a scene? TLTLLT presents a scene from season three, episode one. What are we surrounded by down here? Coach. Yeah, Jamie? We're surrounded by poopy. Mm, that's right. But if you ask me, we're surrounded by the whole bunch of poopy up there as well, yeah? See, gentlemen, right now, you all's brains are basically London in 1857. You're blocked up by other people's dookie. You all need to make an internal sewer system within yourself and then connect to each other's tunnels, help each other keep that flow. So if you're ever in a crisis of confidence, you know, borrow some of Jamie's, yeah? Or if you're feeling down, you know, get some Danny in your life. So what you were saying really does remind me of that scene because it's about recognizing how people in the classroom are connected, mm -hmm. recognizing uh, when we might want to build on another person's strength, seek another person's perspective. And, and I would agree. I think that that is an important piece to the social-emotional learning. We know that from Lonnie Horn's work and Motivated, this idea of belongingness. We know it from Brian Camborn's work when he's talking about working together and developing a system where students are learning from each other, they're giving each other feedback. And we know it from Vygotsky. We were talking about one of our favorite articles. And do you want to say something about, about that? <laughs> well, Vygotsky and the Three Bears, name of the article, it'll be linked in the notes. But just that, that whole idea of, you know, it's not just about learning better, but that it's essential to learning for learners to be able to express their ideas to each other and to try to make sense of each other's idea, that they're collaboratively constructing um, their understanding. You know, so that, that, that is actually how the learning happens. You know? And I, I can't remember if I've shared this or not, so if I have, listener, this is a callback. If not, <laughs> well, you're welcome. A couple of years ago, our student teachers are talking about what part of the school day their own students found most interesting. And they, on a regular ba basis, said lunch. And they said it with a little bit of derision, <laughs> right? They said lunch is their favorite. But we really sat down and thought about it and talked about it, and it made sense, right? Lunch is where they get a chance to talk. They get a chance to connect with their friends. What does lunch look like in math class? Thinking about that lunch and math class, you know, one story that comes to mind immediately is one of my classes of pre-service teachers is working with a first grade classroom, excellent partner teacher, Mrs. Caterino. Uh, one of them was working with a, a boy who the first time, um, and I was a part of this, he was pushing his chair back and kicking his feet on the floor, did not want to participate at all. Mm -hmm. And having built some relationship with him, our future teacher has so much more of a relationship with him. And instead of what she's discovered as a part of, instead of dictating things to him, she lets him help construct what they're going to do. Mm -hmm. I happened to be sitting in with them last week, and he proposed a game. And then they started making up the rules for the game. 
And then uh, the teacher started slipping some kind of math ideas that she wanted to talk about with him into the game. But because he was so much more a part of kind of offering the activity, he was engaged, he was participating, he was open to suggestions, despite the fact that he's somebody who can close off when he feels threatened or frustrated. So we talked about more kind of the social part. What about the emotional part? Where where do you see that coming in? Just my immediate response to people who don't think feelings are any part of it is all the time we've spent talking to our learners who were very successful students and then hearing what they went through emotionally in math class, mm-hmm. right? They had lots of negative experiences. It gave them definitely negative feelings about themselves and what they were capable of. They experienced anxiety. How do we help them to get over that? Or maybe what lessons are there in Ted Lasso that could help us to get over that? TLTLLT presents a scene from Season 1, Episode 2. Hey, Sam, come here a sec. Coach, I'm sorry. You know what the happiest animal on Earth is? It's a goldfish. You know why? No. Got a 10-second memory. Be a goldfish, Sam. How is that not Ted, like, telling Sam not to feel what he's feeling? So I had a counselor once who explained the difference between shame and guilt to me in terms of this idea of guilt is good because it lasts about 10 minutes. I want to change behavior. I recognize that I'm aware that something is not going the way that I want it to go. I've done something I wish I hadn't done. I want to do it differently. And now I'm going to try to do it. Shame is something that I hang on to right, that I, that I don't let go of, that's dark, that drags me down. Th- that idea that when you do something wrong, learn from it and move on, I think is, is the piece. And the feeling part, we definitely have to deal with it, but we don't need to contribute more to it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Probably the most frequent thing I quote to my students from you is about graceful imperfection. Mm, which was also the same counseling. Yeah. So how would you explain that idea? This idea that we aren't called to be perfect, we're called to be gracefully imperfect. And so how do we, when we make mistakes, how do we, if necessarily, make amends, but also to move on, not, not dwell on that. I talked with Raj Shah about this whole idea of, I want my class in some ways to be math therapy. It's dealing with some of those issues and being able not to have them hold you back any longer. So, so what's something you might do in class? So like something happens that, that is a situation where typically students would feel shame. Mm-hmm. What, do, what do you do that's different? It starts by what you were saying before. We, bo- we built hopefully a community where it's okay for us to acknowledge our mistakes and to move on. That, that uh, Raj talked about it as being a no judgment zone. One of the things that I asked them to do is look at students thinking and find assets in everything. And that starts with being able to find assets in their own thinking. Mm -hmm. When they become negative and start thinking about what they did wrong, if this were student's work, right, how would you, what would you build on? Okay, and so we, and if they have trouble finding it, I guarantee someone else in the classroom can help. Mm -hmm. How about you? Well, just to build on that, I mean, today we've been working on kind of sense-making multiplication algorithms, Mm -hmm. and somebody who 
has said multiple times to be gently corrected by me that she's not a math person, mm-hmm. uh, came to the board and shared a three-digit times a two-digit problem. She does all this amazing work, kind of breaking it down, annotating her work, talking through her thinking. People were just amazed. And she sat back down, and we, we did talk a little bit about, okay, so if you were working with her, what might be next? Mm-hmm. Uh, but then we concentrated on what was there. Mm-hmm. over all those forms of understanding that were there. Nice. And the other people in the class were able to make a long list of all the understanding that she showed us and shared with us. The whole I'm not a math person reminds me of a scene from, we finally get to talk about season three, right? <laughs> Where at the end of the second episode, Roy is talking about some, some thoughts that he has about why he left Chelsea. It comes down to him saying... I'm not the kind of person who can just be happy. And Ted's response is, not yet. We've used that language in our classroom when a student says, I'm not a math person, not yet. I can't do this, not yet. I don't get this, not yet. And so really sort of fostering that growth mindset. Right. I think it'd be a good time to, to hear from some real experts. Oh, excellent. We have excellent people lined yeah. up this episode. Mike Hackley is a middle school math teacher and an educational coach specializing in project-based learning and social-emotional learning. Welcome to the podcast. I will let Mike introduce himself. He's here to talk with us about social-emotional learning. Thanks, John. It's great to be with you guys. My name is Mike Cackley, and I am an educator of 20 years. I've taught basically STEM, middle school STEM, back before it was called that in the day. And I have taught math history, personal finance, lots of different things. And really my area of passion is project-based learning. And what I've come to realize over the past few years is that social-emotional learning is kind of the final product of PBL. That's kind of where I've landed that the reason why we do PBL is to develop the SEL skills in kids. So what is project-based learning to you? Project-based learning is an approach where students are learning through a project. It's not something just thrown on at the end. Kids are involved in deep inquiry and they're working with the community to solve a problem. Oftentimes they are working collaboratively. The The learning happens through the project rather than as some kind of add-on at the end. So how do you see that as, because I mean, that sounds very academic. I mean, there is the community aspect to it. So how do you see that as leading to Uh, social-emotional learning? There's a lot of misconceptions, I would argue, about SEL. And a lot of people think of it in very narrow terms, like, oh, it's breathing, yoga, mindfulness exercises. And and I would say that that is one small piece of SEL, and those actually are more tools to develop some of the competencies and the companies see themselves. And so a lot of people have a misunderstanding of what it really is, and they just think, hey, you know, and especially in the math world, that SEL is a waste of academic time. It's just fluff. That's just not true. I use the CASEL framework because it's internationally recognized. And even the acronym for CASEL, the A in CASEL stands for academic. Mm -hmm. So it's a collaborative for academic, social, and emotional learning. And it's a very Western way of thinking to divide everything up and compartmentalize everything. In reality, all these things are intertwined together and can't be separated. That definitely helps me make sense of the connection you see to the project-based learning, because project-based learning has a lot of that 
intertwining of uh, your goals for the students as well. For sure. And what we know about SEL from research is it, for it to work, you need a couple of things. Number one, you need adults to model it. Number two, it has to be integrated into the daily activities of the classroom. And unfortunately, what most schools do is just buy some canned curriculum. And if it's elementary school, we do it in morning meeting. If it's secondary, we do it in advisory. And it's a check mark that we click off and say, yeah, we do SEL here, rather than really diving in and making it a core part of what we do in the classroom. Is there a project that you've done that you feel like is a good example of this? So this is just a small thing. I start the year off with what I just a mini project that I call the selfie project. It's really just to get to know your activity with the students. And I do some slides and I give them a template and kids do some slides. It was just really interesting. I'm teaching sixth grade math to see how well the students responded to it because it allowed them to personalize and share things they're interested in. And I don't think they have that experience a lot in math class. You know, that's that's safe for ELA class. I got a lot of positive, even at conferences, I had parents positive feedback about that. And it was just a couple of days that I spent at the beginning of the year building some classroom culture, but it really seemed to impact my students and their attitude towards the class. And I would have kids who say, you know, I hate math, but I like this class. And to me, that's that's the first win right there. Yeah, I like that. So I'll start class sometimes. Uh, I mean, I do a sign-in sheet and sometimes it's I ask them, questions that I need to know, like how far are you on your project? Or do you have questions about some something we're working on? But usually it's goofy questions. And one of my classes this semester, they've like taken that and run with it. So when I come into the classroom, they have five poll questions up on the backboard. And we spend the first couple of minutes every day talking about kind of what, what they're interested in. And it could be something like, uh, do you put your ketchup on your fries or on the side? <laughs> or it could be a serious issue, you know, like, do you support vouchers for education, right? I never know what's going to be up on the up on the board. I um, love how the students are, are owning it because that just makes it so much more powerful. Thinking about what you said about people have the misconception that it's this waste of time. And we've just spent a couple minutes talking about things that are very like non-math, for example, if we're talking about a math class. So how do you counter that idea that, that this is a waste of time? There's a couple of things. For one, I'm just not a big fan of the idea that we have to teach bell to bell and that kids can't ever take a mental break. That's developmentally untrue for a sixth grader anyway. And just the five minute passing time isn't enough either. So I think it's okay at the beginning of class or in the middle of something to do something a little silly and fun once in a while. If we actually look at them, and I'm sure you can put links in this so people can look at it, the five castle competencies, there's a couple of them that I think really stand out in the math classroom. And the one that stands out the most is responsible decision-making. These are some of the sub-bullet points. Demonstrating curiosity and open-mindedness. I want my kids to be curious in math and open-minded and look for lots of solutions. Learning how to make a recent judgment after analyzing information, data, and facts. I mean, that sounds like a math standard right there to me. And that's such a difficult thing, like getting yeah. students to reflect on what did they do and how to evaluate it, kind of process it a bit. When we talk about responsible decision making, it's really problem solving, analyzing uh, all the verbs that we want to use in the math room. And so I just think that that particular branch of SEL is 100% compatible with everything in the math classroom of problem solving and getting kids to think 
So you've actually written the book on this, right? Connecting inquiry and social emotional. Yes. Yeah, I've recently co-authored a book with Dr. Dinga Regatz, uh, Pulse of PBL, and it's Cultivating Equity Through Social-Emotional Learning. And as I kind of said at the beginning, we see the SEL skills as the final product of a project. Oftentimes, we talk about ideal graduates or portrait of a graduate, and we list all these skills that we want kids to have when they leave the classroom. Mm-hmm. And those are SEL skills. I hate the term soft skills because they're they're not soft at all. And really... Those skills that we want to develop are SEL. And if you look at the council competencies, they all kind of fit in there. If that's what we really want our kids to develop and be, and then math to me is just a tool to get there. That's how how I look at it. And I'll I'll mention a couple other things from the competencies. So another big area is, is self-management, getting kids to be able to manage themselves. They're, you know, I say the three T's, their team task and time. When you think about it, one of the big things we're always pushing in math class is for perseverance. And perseverance is a self-management skill. I, I was working with some kids this past week on ratio tables, and they're really good at the additive ratio table. But then we throw these ones at them where it's multiplicative and skipping around. And they some of the kids uh, conceptually were really struggling with it. And I had a girl in tears, and I just told her, you know, hey, you got this, keep working on it. And we kept working on it. And by the end of the hour, she got it. And that's where the, that perseverance comes in. Because if you don't have that in math, you're you're not going to make it. You, you can't just give up because everyone struggles sometimes. And so then that leads to the identity piece, which again, often associated with ELA, like, oh, who am I kind of stuff. But I think we know that kids' math identity is huge. And how kids see themselves. So that self-awareness of, yeah, actually, I can't do math. And that's, to me, like the first battle, once again. Because if kids think they can't do math, then it's self-fulfilling prophecy. What are, I don't hope I'm not being too repetitive here, but like, what are some things that happen in your classroom where, where kind of a math identity gets built? I mean, you talked about an individual interaction with your student with the ratio table. Is it just kind of... A compilation of those kinds of experiences over the year, or is it something you address intentionally? I, I think it's both. You know, I'm I'm definitely addressing it in my language and how kids talk, and especially how kids self-talk. Like I'm gonna correct a kid who has negative self-talk because that's really harmful. But you know, they're just kids, they don't know any different. But you got to build that confidence in them. I, I had this this girl this year. And we do a lot of the thinking classroom routines, random groups at the boards, open-ended problems. And this girl was really one of my best thinkers and just encouraging her and really enjoying watching her do her work. Now, she's the kind of kid that makes some errors, computational errors along the way. So sometimes she, she doesn't always get everything right, but her thinking, her thinking is beautiful. She wrote me a full page letter that I have right on my desk. I look at it all the time saying, you made me believe that I can do math. I never thought I could before this year. And it made me happy. And it also made me really sad. How are you in sixth grade? And you made it this far thinking that you're not good at math. When I think about her compared to many other students, she's certainly not near the bottom. And a lot of it is celebrating that. I, when I have students at the board and they're still, I, I can't say I'm implementing the thinking classroom all with fidelity. I'm still learning how to do it myself. But oftentimes, kids are still looking to me. They'll ask me a question like, 
well, how long was it? And I'm like, yeah, just acknowledging that and making a big deal out of it, I'd be like, yes, great question. And then I just walk away. Like, you're asking <laughs> the right question, but I'm not going to answer it for you. Yeah. But you're you're thinking about what you need to know and just encourage them like, hey, great question. And then walk away and let them figure out what to do with the question. And yeah. I don't, I'm not as good at that, but that's that's my goal to really push kids and acknowledge and celebrate when they do something different, when they have a different approach, when they ask good questions. And that always makes me think of the ELA thing about how questions are what move us forward. So getting the learner to pose that question, that really is what they need. Do you want to say something about the Desmos mathematician list? Sure. I also think, you know, you brought up a few minutes ago about equity and just finding little ways to celebrate that math doesn't always come from white males, you know, and I love the Desmos randomizer of famous mathematicians. And I mean, to be honest, I don't know who most of them are, but it's obvious, not only to me, but to the kids that these people are from all over the world in different cultures, just by the kinds of names they have. And I think it's important to celebrate that diversity and honor the equity. One of the things I lean into, uh, I have a, a decent amount of Hispanic students in my school. Some of them are really good mathematicians and I'm pushing them like, hey, have you ever thought about engineering? Have you thought about this? You know, just acknowledging, getting them to see, because a lot of times they just don't have confidence in themselves because that's not necessarily what's in their family, just how they're how their situation is, they so, may yeah. not have anyone in their immediate family who's gone to college. And that may not be something they've even considered. Yeah. So they don't even see it as a possibility. Yeah. And to me, equity isn't like some special stuff that you sprinkle on to what you're doing. That that to me can be like othering kids and saying, oh, I'm going to do this for these kids because they're black and brown. Well, that's problematic to me. To me, equity is like, you have amazing skills and I am going to push you to the highest level because I know math is a gateway to college and opportunities. And if you can't do math, you're pro- it's unlikely that if you struggle with math that you're going to graduate from college and maybe not even attend. And so to me, I see it as like a gatekeeper that I'm helping these kids have the option. Like they might not choose to do it, but I don't want them to be held back because of a lack of being pushed in an area that they can do. Yeah, they if they're intimidated, then they don't even try it, and then uh, that keeps them from that next level. Yeah, it's important. We need to see models. So sometimes we'll ask when we're talking about a particular topic about barriers to teachers kind of engaging in, in an idea or bringing it into their classroom, and you've talked a little bit about kind of misconceptions of SEL. That's got to, that's got to be part of the barrier. Do you, are there other things that you think make it hard for teachers to adjust this in the classroom? There's a couple of things. What most teachers are going to think of immediately is time. When do I have time to do this? Mm-hmm. That's the first barrier. And then the second thing is they may not have the skill set to really be an expert in SEL. They need to do some self-work first. Yeah, that's really interesting. So how do they get started? Like anything. I mean, I'm, you know, how do I know you? Through Twitter, you know, going out and learning, like go out. Everything's out there. Do some reading. Do some studying, find a book club, learn about it is, is the first step. And then the, the key part of this is it's not like I do five minutes of SEL every day. I do it all day, every day, and it's just ingrained in what we're doing and just being aware of it and looking for opportunities to reinforce that great problem solving or to counteract that negative mindset. 
and just embedding it in to what we do to push each kid in different ways where they need it. It's it's personalized. You you can, if you have a class that's struggling with a specific skill set, you can do a little mini lesson, spend five minutes on it and, and talk about that topic and say, hey, guys, I want us to focus on this today. Like we're not sharing in, in our groups. I want us to work on collaborating better in our groups. And then it can be as simple as at the end of class, say, hey, fist to five, how'd you do today? Or turn and talk, talk to your group members for one minute. And so it doesn't have to be this huge time thing, but consistently just throwing it out there and talking about it all the time for a minute or two. I really like that way of thinking about it. Like you even just becoming familiar with these competencies, like you were talking about from the castle framework, because probably they're already engaged in some of some of those things. And it's just going to help a teacher see when they're doing in that or identify an opportunity, you know, to emphasize those things. I really like that a lot. Is there anything else that you'd like people to know either about our topic today or about your work? I just say that I'm very passionate about PBL and SEL. And so I do consulting on the side and have my book. I'd love for you to check it out if you're interested. And I'm always available to chat with people online or whatever about it because I'm passionate about it. So it had, didn't come up beforehand. Are you familiar with the show, Ted Lasso? I, obviously, I've heard of it. I don't live in a bubble, but I've never actually seen it because <laughs> I don't have Apple TV. I've seen a clip on YouTube or so, the one where he's in the throwing darts. That's the big one. That was a pretty good clip. We also ask a silly question. The one we're asking this episode is, what's the farthest you've traveled from home? So where was that? I lived in China, Shenyang, China, for two years. Was it a part of a learning experience or were you teaching? I was teaching English over there. And that's actually what moved me to get into education. I really wasn't a teacher before that. I came back and went to the GTC program at Grand Valley after that and became a teacher, largely based on that experience. Oh, I didn't know that. That's fabulous. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for being with us, Mike, and sharing this expertise. Well, thanks, John. It was great chatting with you. I can't tell you how much I've been looking forward to this conversation. I want to welcome Taylor Darwin to the Teaching Like Ted Lasso podcast. Taylor, would you uh, tell our audience a little bit about yourself? Yes, my name is Taylor Darwin, and I am a community college instructor in Texas. I teach our mathematics courses, and I teach a, a wide range of learners from developmental to co-requisite to our advanced courses. And while I do that, I am also a mother and I am a doctoral candidate. I am very excited to be here and talk about things that I've learned in my studies, but also have um, attempted to implement in my classroom as I'm concurrently learning about them. Are you familiar with the TV show, Ted Lasso? I am. And I had to play catch up last night with my husband to make sure that I was all caught up on the most recent season in preparation for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Whether or not you'd watched it, that would be fine. But I'm, I'm glad that we can have that conversation as well. In one of the episodes, Tan Lines, pretty early on, we find out that Ted has traveled 4,438 miles to be able to work at Richmond. And we know that Ted asks lots of questions to get to know the people around him. We try to do the same thing on the podcast. So our question for you is, what's the farthest you've ever traveled from home? I went to Thailand once to visit my cousin, and that is the longest I ever remember being on a plane. It was about a 15-hour plane ride 
this particular episode is going to be about social emotional learning. So if you were going to describe to somebody what social emotional learning is, what, what would your definition be? Some of my colleagues and I refer to this as the feel good part of math or the feel good mm. part of teaching. And I think for the first year or so when I was learning about this and implementing some of these strategies, I separated it from the content. And mm -hmm. as I've evolved this a little bit, I've started to realize that social emotional learning is not only about checking in with students and seeing how they're doing and, and the feel good part of it, because it is, I think it is important to establish relationships and see how your students are doing emotionally. But I also think in part, it has something to do with tying those needs into the, to the content. In my case, I teach math, as I've said, and to tie in their interests and their needs and their, you know, their well-beings into the content has been a little more meaningful for me. And so if I were to uh, attempt to define it, it would be in that way, incorporating those needs into the content, not just keeping them as two separate entities, if you will. That makes sense, especially it sounds like given your work with the Dana Center at the University of Texas, as I poked around that, I saw that there was a lot of connections that were being made between the SEL and the Standards for Mathematical Practice. Could you maybe tell us a little bit about what that process was like and how you're seeing that being implemented? Absolutely. So the, the Dana Center has been really a dream to work with. These people are amazing and they, they feel to me like they're in a lot of meaningful parts of our education system. And so um, if you're not familiar with their work, um, for those of you who are listening, I definitely encourage you to go look at their website. My role with the Dana Center was helping them develop their co-requisite foci session. And in Texas, we have co-requisite courses, which essentially are developmental courses, uh, students that were meant to be placed in developmental courses, in our case, mathematics. And instead of taking the developmental course and then the transfer level course, such as algebra, now they're taking them simultaneously. And essentially, this initiative allows students to complete their degree in a more efficient time management way. I help them develop these co-requisite sessions, and a lot of the material that we created for these sessions circulated around social-emotional learning. And meeting with these professors, um, we'd have six sessions um, in, a, in a foci session, and attempting to understand the co-requisite student and, and implementing these data-driven decisions and really centering our discussions around mindset of ourselves as instructors and, and, and also implementing these strategies on our students as well. Because I know that if we have any math people listening, they have heard their students say, I have math anxiety. And that again is they have an emotional attachment to math and it's negative. And how do we, how do we separate that? How do we understand that? And how do we help them move past this idea that I'm not good at math anymore? I was told I wasn't good at math either in elementary or secondary, or they're in my class because the college told them they're not college. Mm. So they have had a lot of issues. And I think a lot of our students, when it comes to math and in other subjects, have a big emotional baggage. And again, that's where I've kind of understood 
there is an emotional baggage here and we need to figure out how to support them emotionally to get through this content. And so that's just some of the stuff that we talked about with the Dana Center and, and some of the conversations that we had when developing these materials to provide to instructors and how to best support some um, students that they'll interact with. You teach, you said, one of these co-requisite classes. So what does, what does that look like in practice? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. In terms of community, I really try to, and I've heard this oftentimes on your podcast, I've implemented building thinking classrooms. My, I got a grant and my entire classroom is filled with whiteboards. And so it's the first day of class and it sounds cliche to say, but it's true. If I start with explaining the syllabus on the first day, I've already lost the students. They've already gotten to their mind that this is just like an, an, another college class. And the, the issue with college, in my opinion, is the students come in with this stigma that this person is the professor and we're not going to have a relationship and this is going to be difficult. And mm -hmm. I mean, they've been fed this their entire lives. Well, you can't do this when you get to college. I think there's already that disconnect there that you have to break down. And I'm, I'm a small five foot person. I'm trying to come at them saying, I'm not an intimidating person. I promise you, it is my job to help you succeed. And this isn't any sort of bell curve distri grading distribution. If everyone makes an A, we can help everyone make an A. There are no, there are no finite amount of A's. And so just having those conversations and getting them up and talking to one another. And for my online students, I have mental health check-ins, which have been mm. really meaningful to me because a lot of the times these students are, again, an, a community college, non-traditional. They work, they're single mothers. They need to know that someone cares about them. And in terms of, you know, connecting it to the content, I've really, in the last year or so, reassessed the way that I'm providing assessments. And so in, mm -hmm. in prerequisite courses, they have historically not had a positive experience with assessment. That is why they have been placed in these courses, because they failed a high-stakes assessment. And so I have tried to get away from only using high-stakes assessment and going into project-based learning, because that is something that they're going to use in their real life working with others or something of that capacity. And I will say this, that I have had many, many failures and I always go in with it and sometimes say, this is the first time that I've ever done this. I don't know how it's going to go, but I thought that y'all were the right class to try it with because I want to see what you can do. And so I try to incorporate assignments that are going to inspire students to work together. And if I'm lucky, bring part of themselves into the assignment as well. I'm just trying to alleviate their math anxiety. That is the biggest thing that I hear. And if anyone says that they had fun or if they learned something today, or if they bring part of themselves into it, that is a win for me as an instructor. So it sounds like starting off right from the beginning, creating a classroom culture of we're in this together. Along with that, it sounds like assessment is something that you're recognizing as a part of that dynamic that needs to change. So those sound like some of the ways that you are incorporating SEL into the content. Do you feel like I've got a good grasp of kind of what you do? Is there so. more? 
Um, I did see that last one question about some folks suggest that SEL is a distraction. My response to that would be that I just would like to say that SEL is not threatening the integrity of my course. It's mm. not minimizing the rigor. It is just changing the way that we have done things in education for the last however many years, which we know isn't working. And SEL is a, a strategy that I think we need more than ever post-COVID. Our students feel disconnected. They need that connection. They need to be emotionally supported, but it's not in any way saying that in lieu of this, you're not gonna learn quadratic equations. We're still learning. We're just incorporating supportive structures for students. That's nice. Well, and that then I think leads into your research, right? I have focused my research on these co-requisite populations because um, as far as we know, these courses have a high enrollment, uh, Black and Latino students at a, at a disproportionate amount, and first-generation college students, and low-income students, which is essentially the vast majority of students enrolled in community college, and therefore we have a lot of co-requisite courses. I've really been interested in this. I, I talked to um, a group of Latinas as they identify themselves who were enrolled in these courses, but then they mentioned the instructors so frequently that I wanted to take the research a step further. So then I started speaking to some instructors of color because I was interested in the relationship that instructors of color had and how they approached these populations of students. A lot of the instructors, I wasn't searching for SEL, but every single one of them mentioned it in some capacity. I can say that I think a lot of teachers implement SEL, even if they don't know what it means, or even if they don't know what it's called officially. All of these instructors implemented some form of SEL, and a lot of it um, was shown through their, their vulnerability and their own personal experiences with learning growing up. For example, one of the instructors identified himself as a um, queer Latino individual, and he kept talking about the safe space that he wanted to create for his mm -hmm. students. I mean, he he said it so frequently that I, I mean, it it kind of changed the way that I viewed the way that I approached that idea. And the why is he, you know, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, why is this so important to him? I mean, of course, a safe space is important to me too, but it's not something that I would just talk about at length as he did. And we finally, you know, he finally admitted that he didn't feel safe growing up. He grew up in a very conservative area. He didn't feel like he was afforded this. And this is something that he wants to do to their students. This research has really, and this experience had, has made me think about the way that educators approach students with different backgrounds and experiences. Because, and I'm still trying to wrap my mind around it a little bit, but the towing the line between sympathy and empathy as an educator. You know, um, I think my educational practices changed a lot in the last three years as I've become a mother and a student again. I think a lot of the times we forget what it's like to be a student. We think, oh, they forgot this due date again. I am one of the worst students now that I'm a student again. I turn in everything late. That's just life and it happens. And having that conversation with him made me realize I 
have sympathy towards my students because I am a student again. And he has sympathy because he wants to create the safe space because this is not something that he was afforded. But how do we reach beyond that and, and you know, allow instructors to kind of move beyond that idea of, I want something through something similar to, I can try to understand what you're coming from and help you learn in this way and support you emotionally, even though I haven't actually experienced what you're going through. And so anyways, the, the, the experiences talking with them helped me realize that even though I'm not, you know, haven't gone through some of these experiences as my students, how can we support these students and how can we support instructors and teachers to, you know, develop this emotional intelligence to be able to do that with their students as well? You're right. Effective teachers do that without maybe even knowing it. And so how do we help them provide frameworks or provide resources to help them to do what they're doing, maybe accidentally, intentionally? The best thing as far as transitioning from secondary to post-secondary for me was the time that I was able to implement reflection into my practices. I just mm. simply had more time. And again, I, I think that secondary and elementary, they don't have enough time. And that is something that needs to be changed in our education system. Besides giving teachers more time, what are some other resources that you might point people to as it relates to social emotional learning? In terms of resources, things that have helped me are, as we've discussed, the Dana Center has some really good resources, although I think there's maybe limited to math. I look a lot to my colleagues that inspire me in this field. And I mean, in this, in this area of SEL, we collaborate a lot. And these are the people who are helping me be just a sounding board and say, how do you think this assessment's going to go? Or, you know, this project that I'm going to try to implement with my students and just having that community again. And I mean, Twitter is great. Twitter has been, I just got on Twitter a few months ago and it's been a really good community. I think there's some dark, dark, deep dives that you can go on Twitter, but there's also this happy, positive aspect to Twitter. And if you stay in that realm, I think it can be a really great space to ask people questions and get feedback. That's some of the resources that I would recommend to others. Great. And we'll, um, again, put those uh, in the show notes, including Taylor's Twitter handle so that you can connect with her and keep these conversations going. So thank you so much for this time. This has been just as rewarding as, as I thought about it. We appreciate you and, and the work that you're doing. We're, we're looking forward to, to your article. You'll let us know when, when that comes out um, so, we can, so we can learn more. And um, please, uh, please take care of yourself, okay? Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. One of the things I liked that what Taylor said was she was really, really intentional about this connection between SEL and the content. Okay, so I immediately feel guilty, right? Because <laughs> I work with the, these future teachers and we always talk about reflecting and sum, summarizing at the end of a lesson. And the question that they always want to ask is, you know, well, what did you like best? Mm. And and I'm always pushing them to talk about the math. What's yeah, the math yeah. ideas? So, but, you know, thinking about that emotional relationship with it. 
Yeah, yeah, it was powerful. And it's connected to David Yeager's work a little bit. How so? Well, he talks about, and he's talking about adolescence, but this idea that social-emotional learning ought not be something that you separate from the actual content, that it's something that helps build student efficacy, it helps them to build good decision-making mm-hmm. within the content. Yeah, so, I mean, you'll hear people mock this by saying something like, well, how do you feel about 2 plus 2? Right. Right, but... But just, again, those multiplication algorithms we were doing, Mm. you know, what facts are you confident in? Mm. You know, how, you know, where are your strong points? Knowing Mm -hmm. what you can build on, Mm -hmm. uh, that is some pretty intense content knowledge. Right. Yeah, I agree that you can certainly make it sound absurd, but if if you are seriously taking the work, especially that Taylor was talking about, and recognizing that a person's emotional relationship with with content influences their identity around that content, then we, we can't ignore it. Yeah. It, it, long-term consequences. Oh, yeah. Right? What doors are open to that? So I'm curious. Uh, our question to our guests was the farthest you've ever been away from home. What's the farthest you've ever been away from home? I actually don't know. I haven't ever computed the distances, so oh. I'm not as experienced as you in Tanzania, but we got to go with our colleague Lisa Kazmar yeah. to Tanzania, but I did some traveling with my brother in Indonesia mm-hmm. and Thailand, and I'm, I'm not sure which one's farther away. I should be able to figure out. I, I think Indonesia, just because it feels more opposite-ish. Right. Right, and time zones, Tanzania's six or seven time zones, right. depending, right? Right. So... Makes sense. Anyhow. Yeah. Mine would be Tanzania. I haven't done as much traveling with you as you have. But you're about to go back to Tanzania. Part of why we say all this, well, there's two reasons. One is we're going to have to go on hiatus because the um, time zones, as John was saying, don't necessarily match up. So I leave at the end of April, beginning of May, and we're there for a month. So we're going to take a break. This will give you a chance to get caught up. It'll give Ted Lasso a chance to finish up, or at least the season to finish up, and so that we can make sure that we're making more connections to season three. But there's also a second project, and that's going to be a podcast about the experience. We're going to interview students about before, during, and after. We're also going to talk to some other faculty that have been on the experience. We're going to talk to Lisa Kasmer about sort of developing the experience. I'm hoping to interview some folks there about what it means for us to be there. So um, we should be back at it hopefully in June. So Excellent. Enjoy season three. Believe it. What are you doing? Um, I'm on Twitter. I guess it's doom scrolling is what people call it, but it's not usually the case on education. Yeah, we love Twitter. But all of these folks are on here attacking one another or... Oh, you mean like... Yeah, uh, and, and yeah, and that thing. Yeah. You know, and I, it's just, it's got me all clogged up. Dave, yeah. it's poop What do you mean? 
like the sewer. Oh, I should just let it flow. Yes. That's smart, Jamie Tart.